Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Reese Gordon is one of the best tattooists in the world. He's the owner of the Little Tokyo Tattoo Studio in Surrey Hills. Reese Gordon is tattooed all around the world, including Tokyo, Japan, where he's tattooed the Yakuza. He's tattooed famous people by the likes of Justin Bieber. Reese Gordon, welcome to the Stick Up. Hey, Russell, good to see you. Mate, it's that's a pleasure to have you here, man. Like I, um, Reese, I'm a big fan. Reese, Reese is um, one of the best tattooists in the world. And um, it was just a pleasure. I got an introduction from a, a mutual friend of ours, Ron Isherwood, but I'd been hearing about a lot about your stuff from other guys and seeing some of your work around. And I was just, wow, blown away. You know, and I, I wanted to get tattooed by you. And um, here we are. We're, we're uh, 12 hours into it. Yeah, and now sitting down here. So, yeah, it's, it's been a great journey so far meeting you. Obviously, you know, a fan of what you do um, and the intro from Ron. Uh, you know, on the same wavelength and then, you know, obviously you like Japanese-style tattooing, mm. carry on from what you've already got. So, yeah, it's a it's an honour and I'm sure it's just the beginning of other stuff too. Not a problem. I, I, I totally agree. Reese, I'll just go through the standard questions like where did you grow up? What was your family upbringing like? Yeah. You know? What... Uh, I Born in Melbourne, born in Panch Hospital in Northgate in like early 70s. Uh, grew up in an area called East Preston. Um, my mum and dad bought my grandfather's house. My grandfather was still with us uh, till he, he passed away. I, I had a great upbringing. We mm. weren't rich, we weren't poor, middle of the road. Um, I think then at around, I was still very multicultural area. Like I remember growing up, you know, my best friend was either Greek, my next door neighbour was Italian. Um, you know, I was like as an Aussie, the minority mm. in, in my area growing up. Um, I think around 10, we moved to an area called Mill Park in the northern suburbs, which like a new housing estate, probably the equivalent to Campbelltown here. Yeah. Um, next door neighbour was Irish, Italian on the other side, lots of free area and paddocks. So we'd always like roam around on our pushies and then got into dirt bikes. You know, I was riding dirt bikes from 12 years old, um, you know, just being a little little hoodlum or a little lout, having fun, just up for adventure because it was you were so bored out there. There was nothing to do. Like to get to the city was maybe an hour and a half away. So I think I gravitated to hanging around with the the so-called bad element or the tough guys at the local milk bar or the local shop. Then, you you know, you're riding dirt bikes, someone's dumped a stolen car in the area, someone's lighting it on fire, you're getting chased by the cops, just... Fun! Yeah, exactly. Normal stuff kids of that era did. <laughs> yeah, like, fun. you didn't have to be home until the streetlights were on. Yeah. Like, And I look back and, you know, like, mum and dad gave me a great upbringing. They taught me a good work ethic. Like, I was, you know, again, not rich, not poor, but I was delivering news newspapers from nine years of age to make money. That's how I saved up to get a dirt bike. Um... And I look back now and I go, man, not many parents now would let your kid come home after school, 
fill the bike up with a jerry can of petrol and come home when the sun's down. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you can't you, do it these days. No, you're blatantly riding on the road illegally and yeah. all that stuff, but it was the best. You know, Mad Max was out. We thought we were, you know, part oh, of that God. whole scene. And just, yeah, a great upbringing. And that's when tattoos started to come in it. Wait, I but when did you display some sort of talent for art? Like, some kids are just. I, I, my mate, he was a tattooist, said, you just got it or you haven't. Are you a believer in that? Yes and no. I'm Yes and no, it depends. Like me personally, I was one of the maybe top five kids in my year level that could draw. Hmm. Um, I don't remember. I hated that. Yeah. I just wonder, how come I'm not one of those top five kids? I, I wished I was one of the top five kids that could play footy, Yeah, you know, so I guess everyone wants to be something, something else. So... I always remember drawing and just having fun and I, I don't think I then picked it up until tattoos came along. Mm. Um, so I was hanging out with the older guys. I got my first tattoo at 15. I probably looked 11 mm. um, and then just thinking, wow, this this could be a cool job. Um, one of the main moments was I remember this tattooist in his trackies, mullet, his blue trucky singlet, pulled out like a wad of cash. And I looked at it and went, wow, you can make that money. Little did I realise it probably six months of takings in his pocket, mm. but people would like to flash it around back then. Uh, then a friend of my dad's was a tattoo artist. He got back reintroduced with us and reconnected with the family. A cool dude. He was a, a cross between MacGyver and Rod Stewart. He was an old tow truck driver, an old garbo, had done time in prison, just a cool cat, mm. you know, and, and Charlie was coming out of tattoo retirement and I just used to hassle him all the time. He brought me a bunch of designs one week and said, all right, draw these. And next week he's back at our house. I showed him the designs. Then I started hanging out with him after school, weekends and school holidays and then slowly entered into it, you know, the old school apprenticeship way. Um, mate, what was your first tattoo work like? What was it? First remember? tattoo I got, yeah, was a, a dragon head and I only got the outline and I, I – clearly remember I looked too young. I mm. still hadn't grown properly yet, but I just wanted to get one to be in the gang or be mm. cool or whatever. Uh, then I, I didn't wait till later on to 18 again. But the first tattoo I ever did was on one of his mates who just got off some court case one day and he was pissed up, drunk, celebrating, and he's like, go on, give the boy a go. So I tattooed uh, a banner on his arm with a date in it and that was supposedly the day he was going to change the destiny the rest of his life. Beautiful. It's a real, I think, I look at, let's talk about that journey about, because you've been all around the world tattooing. You've yep. been everywhere, man. And, 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 man. and let's talk about, like, how long did you stay there and when, when was your first, when did you first take off overseas? Um, so from, from working with Charlie for quite a few years, I then worked in another shop in Brunswick, mm. in, in Melbourne, for about, two and a half years, and, and that was great. That was up, upstairs above uh, Club X Adult Bookstore. Okay. And Brunswick wasn't as gentrified as it is now. It was still, you know, working class, sort of poorer suburb. So I'd work from three in the afternoon till nine at night. You know, my boss that I worked for at that time was a great guy, knockabout guy. He he was in his early 30s and been out of prison for a couple of years for manslaughter. Mm. So we had all these sort of cool people, knockabouts, 
rough and tumble. That, but that's that whole thing. The only people in those days were getting tattoos were criminals and, yeah. and sailors basically, yep. wasn't it? That's very... 100%. Like females, I got told you cannot tattoo a female on the arm, mm. you know, on the arse or the tits for sure. But if you tattoo her on the arm, you're literally going to get sacked. Mm. And that was because they wanted to protect tattooing from coming into the limelight because mm. if you tattooed a young girl from a private school with a tattoo on her arm, you're going to get grief from it and it's going to maybe come down on tattooing. Mm. So I've been fortunate to see it change so much. But that shop was amazing for me. Kenny was so good, pretty much just gave me the keys and he taught me as much as he could, but he was also very encouraging for me to go and get tattooed by other people. So I then started getting tattooed by people that were better than him or or had more experience that could then help me. Um, Who were some of the people that were? kind of rare then. I remember early days of Sleeve Masters and Tony yep. Cowan and who were some of the guys that you were looking up to as, uh, you know, uh, who were some of the tattooists you looked up to back then? In in Melbourne, it definitely would have been Charlie that taught me, Kenny that gave me my first real job in a shop um, and the encouragement. Then there were guys like um, Danny Robinson was like an older legend at the time. Then a guy called Trevor McStay. Um, there was a shop called Body Language at the time where I got my first tattoo out in the suburbs. But probably Trevor McStay has been my one of my biggest mentors. He's tattooed like my back, my legs and my arm, took like a real interest in me when I was around 20 um, and we've had a, a firm friendship for all of these years later. But he also helped me with things not just art-wise but life experience sort of thing. So I was there with Kenny and a bunch of my mates had all gone and travelled to England and were all backpackers. So I stayed in Melbourne and I thought really had no intention to travel. I was like, you know what, I'm going to save up 10 grand, I'm going to buy a VK Brock Commodore and I'm going to go on a Dolan tattoo and I've made it. So I was driving back from, I used to do night shift as a printer as well. I basically crashed the car with no insurance Ended up owing the insurance company. Was it a like, VK Brock Commodore? No, no, it was no. a shitbox Toyota yeah, Corolla. Okay, thank God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, basically, that was a turning point for me that made me go and travel because Kenny goes to me, mate, don't worry about paying the insurance company 10 grand or 12 grand. Go go spend time with your mates overseas. So I was like, really? He went, yeah, don't worry about it, mate. You'll come back in a few years later and it'll be fine. So that's what made me travel. And then I went to the UK and ended up spending eight years overseas, um, which was probably the university of life for me and one of the best things that happened to me as a person but also tattoo-wise. Tattooing in Australia back then was still, even though I was in a good, encouraging environment, there were like generally two people in a tattoo shop. Summer was busy, winter was quiet. Not many people jumped around to gain experience because no one was leaving a shop. So you could only push yourself as far as you could go. So when I went to the UK, all of a sudden I'm working in a shop in central London. I've gone from in Melbourne doing 15 tattoos a week to 15, 20 tattoos a day. So my experience level just started ramping right up. I'm meeting all these other artists from all around the world, going to big tattoo conventions at the time, which were far bigger than what was happening in Australia and starting to make connections, you know, travelling to Amsterdam for a tattoo convention, 
going to Germany for another one, Berlin, and just starting to make friends that were maybe younger around my age as well. Because back in Australia, I only knew of three people my age and we didn't have each other's phone numbers or be regularly in contact. So I think as well, being in the UK, Tattoo was there, knew I was only on a two-year holiday visa, so I wasn't going to be a threat to potentially open up a shop or anything like that because people even there were still very guarded of their territory. So with that, it allowed me to have much more of an information exchange and and learning experience. Wow, what a story. And um, came across some of the soccer hooligans when you were in? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my old boss, Andy, um, he was like a West Ham guy. You know, his house was called ICF Manor. I remember his his wedding. He what got was the back, acronym? What was the ICF Manor? Um, inner City Firm or yeah. Intercity Firm. They were like the thugs that you would get up to all the... Up to no good. Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, he was like a full East End psycho involved in all the class wars. He called me boy for years, mm. right, you know, and it was sort of tough love. Mm. Um, but I knew that it was such a good opportunity that... I didn't let my ego get too ahead of me and go, I'm not going to let that guy talk to me like that. Mm. You know, it was just tough love. And Mm. I think because I'd been around it in my formative years, it was fine. Where if I called one of my staff today boy Mm. or girl, they would leave and I'd have a a fair place work trading, um, you know, some sort of fair place work thing Mm. to have to answer to. So... It was good. We would tattoo a lot of thugs in that shop as well. It's hardcore there, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, we my friend talks about, he goes, you think something's hardcore, you go to, you know, you go from Brisbane to Sydney and you, you see yeah. the step up and then you go from Sydney to London yeah. and, then you, and then you go from London to New, New York and you would have yeah. done all of that route. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, been, I've not been to New York but I've done all that similar stuff. And, yeah, for me, we used to say, I used to live in like a backpacker squat with like 25 people, it would fluctuate between 20 and 25, you know. <coughs> we'd, I'd, back then the tattooing wasn't like it was today, so I'd be tattooing six days a week, I'd turn up and there'd just be people at the door. Mm. you just choose what's off the wall. So there was no homework and there was no real, well, my boss wasn't pushing me to do homework. If I wanted to do a custom design on someone, I'd get told to stop wasting time because you're wasting time on doing tattoos, which means money. Mm. And then I was in my early 20s <coughs> in a big travelling party mode, so I'd just tattoo all day, go to the pub at night, go to the raves on the weekend, you know, travel and and have a ball. But we used to say we were probably living the equivalent of about four years compared to one back in Australia mm. just because of what you're exposed to. And Amsterdam, mate, you went from – how did you end up in Amsterdam from – I know this bit of the backstory. Fill us in on this story at Amsterdam. So Amsterdam, <coughs> I'd been there – I was a little stoner and, you know, life's crazy. So you you watch a Cheech and Chong movie when you're 15 or whatever and you think, oh, wow, that's crazy. And then you, you hear of this magical, mystical drug and prostitute haven called Amsterdam. So – and then years later you end up living there and you're like, wow, how'd this happen? So – I'd been there about 15 times before I ended up living there. I was working in Thailand on an island called Koh Samui and I met a Dutch girl. So we had an amazing three-week romance. Mm. Um, You were in love. Yeah. Oh, 25, (laughs) you know, blonde hair on an island, palm trees, beach, the best. Um, Fell in love, lust, whatever you want to call it. 
So we stayed in contact. That's email period. So then I used to do six months in London and six months in Koh Samui tattooing. Mm. So I come back to London and then she's gone, oh, come over and see me. So call, went over. Then for about a three-month period, I do two weeks on, two weeks off. And then my UK boss goes, mate, I love you, but you got to choose what you're going to do. I'm like, all right, Amsterdam it is. So I ended up living there for two years. I was with Inga for a year and a half. Um, tell me where the place was situated. Where, where were you living? Where we, we lived in the red light district, not the tourist one, the local one. So mm. our doorway was literally between all the hookers. So we had three floors of windows. They're glass doorways mm. with all the ladies standing in them. Um, one end of the street, you've got a bar. The other end of the street, you've got a coffee shop selling weed. And it was on a, on a canal. So it was, you know, a young kid's dream come true of like, man, how how removed from life that I have lived is this. Mm. Um, but they knew my boss. I worked for a guy called Dickie Dennis or Fat Dennis. So we'd be tattooing prostitutes, drug dealers, tough guys, pimps, you name it, everything. And I, I, he he dropped me back out the front of my house one day in a boat on the canal. They're like, oh, you know, Dennis, yeah, hi. So then you just talk to him regularly. You'd come home from work in summer, the doors are open, they're in a the doorway smoking a joint in lingerie. Hey, Reese, how are you? Yeah, not bad. How's business? I'll oh, be quiet. It'll get busier later. So it's just a very surreal environment. But And you normalise it, eh? It does. It becomes normal. So, yeah. you know, Dennis, the shop I worked at there, was was pretty well. It was called 666 Tattoo and he renamed it so it was the first um, tattoo shop in the phone book. Yeah. Um, and it was, he was like a mad coke junkie, like a heart of gold. Like I would regularly have to pay the rent just to keep the shop open because he had to pay the dealers back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was a coffin sitting in the waiting room and he was always like, well, I'm going to OD one day. I won't have far to go. But the guy... Pretty crazy shop as well. Like the guy's job I took was a guy called like Machine Gun Harry yeah. who'd shot a guy in a nightclub. So I come into this sort of crazy tough world um, but I'm just a little travelling Aussie backpacker and somehow managed to just slide in and had an amazing two years there. He also sung in a band called Peter Pan Speed Rock which was like the Dutch version of Rose Tattoo. So my last two nights in Amsterdam before I left, they supported um, ZZ Top the first night and then the next night they supported Motorhead. Wow. So I got to see a lot of the Dutch rock yeah. and roll scene as well yeah. um, through Dennis and that whole crew. Yeah. So it was, yeah, just a, a great time. And I, I was talking to... Did you get um, to meet Lemmy? No, I didn't, no. I'd love no. to meet him. Yeah, but, mate, so many crazy stories of those guys. Yeah. So. And what, like, then you had some health problems, didn't you? Yeah, I ended up, con long story short, I ended up getting, like, a crazy growth in my um, airway and on my voice box. So I ended up having 16 surgeries while I was still over in Europe and basically I lost my voice for two years. And it's funny, I just unpacked some old boxes a couple of months ago and I found old notepads that I used to take out with me to communicate with people um, when I'd be out on the town or anything. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up coming back to Australia because one of the nurses said that it was it was moving down into my lungs and they were thinking about giving me a, a tracheotomy and I'd sort of kept this from my parents because I just, I'm living my best life and I didn't want it to be like torn apart. So that was 
the key moment to come home. But in, in its peak, I was literally getting a surgery every three weeks, three to four weeks just to keep breathing. I'd have a surgery, I could breathe like this, and then within three to four weeks it was like breathing through a pinch straw. So I would have to be careful walking upstairs, have to monitor every action I was doing. Um, so, yeah, pretty mad. And in the end I came home. I think to this date now I've had 55 surgeries. Uh, thankfully my voice has come back. Uh, but it was, yeah, a two, probably two and a half year period of, you know, living in solitude. Yeah, you know, had a lot of conversations in my head. That would have killed me, mate. I could talk yeah. underwater with a mouthful of marbles. I learned to talk again and I always used to come out of the surgeries and you'd have to wait a couple of days until you could talk. And there was always this period of wondering, am I going to be able to talk again? And maybe since then I'm making up for lost time. Yeah, good on you. So, so you should. Hey, um, so, man, you, you start, your reputation's sort of, when you come back to Australia with all of that knowledge over there, you would have been, you know, without, you know, being modest, you would have been a level above most of the things here, what's happened here with tattooing, wouldn't you? Yeah, yes and no. Australia still, or tattooing hadn't really boomed then, but... Mm. My reputation and experience allowed me to get a job in one of the best shops in Queensland. Mm. Um, if I hadn't have had that, that never would have happened. So I worked at one of the best shops on the Gold Coast called Skin Effects. Mm. My boss at the time, Paul Braniff, was the man. He was like the portrait master doing black and grey, crazy business guy as well, ran a super tight ship. So he brought me in under his wing and... I worked there for about three and a half years, but because back then the Gold Coast still prim primarily a tourist town, mm. I'm doing dolphins and frangipanis and flash off the wall. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to start doing custom work. Mm. So it was still, it was a great time. I used to do five till midnight or later, like the night shift. So, mm. you know, you're overlooking surfers, all the nightclubs, go to the strip club after work, mm. the bar, having a, having a great time. And then I got offered a job here in Sydney at a shop called InnoVision, which at that time was one of the leading custom studio studios. So I came down to Sydney and then that's where my custom career started. Mm. Up until then, I'd become a good talker, how to deal with people, how to deal with all sorts of situations, um, technically good tattooer, fast tattooer, all of this stuff. So all those things were building up to get this opportunity in a vision, which then through tattooing becoming more popular, then allowed me to start doing custom work. And InnoVision was known for Japanese work as well, mm. which is, is what I love and I'm now known for the most. Yeah, you, that's that's what, like my tattooing is... Um... My theme of my tattoo is all Japanese and you're mm. always the go-to guy and I'd seen other stuff. Yeah. And, and, and and tell us about, man, how did you end up in Japan? Uh, Japan, probably another one of those crazy things where I thought of Amsterdam, would no way I would ever go there one day. So I bought a book at 18 on Japanese tattooing and was captivated by it and then thought, man, imagine one day I can go there or even get tattooed by one of these great legends. Um one time I was coming back from Europe and I just stopped in there for three days and fell in love with it. And then since then, I've been back there 15 times. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to be tattooed by some of the great old school masters. Um, 
you know, I've been invited into situations where, you know, you'll meet the the yakazar, you'll go to dinners with them, you'll get to see all of their tattoos. And I went to one dinner one night where there's about five Westerners and a crew of about 25 local guys. Mm. You know, they're all coming in. They've all got names like Paulie or Mikey or, mm. you know, they've got these. They're Americanized names, Yeah, Western names. Yeah. Dudes wearing like a fur coat and a bowler hat, like, you know, really hamming it up, like yeah. putting it on. You think, man, is this the Japanese Sopranos? Yeah, yeah. Um, but really cool. Tell but us then, about the, just, just tell us about there's a big fascination with the Yakuzan. Yeah. You know, how did you, like, you, you started tattooing them guys. Yep. Now, with tattooing, you know, like some people, a lot of people just get tattoos for the the, yep. the, the image itself. Yep. What, you know, that's a culture for them. It, it It's also like identification to a clan or a crew, right? Mm. And it's all part of, like, say here in Australia, your average person will be intimidated by a big roided up bikey style dude mm. with gold chains, haircut, tats on his face, dripping in gold rings. That's what general public here shits himself mm. when they see this sort of person. In Japan, it's very different. It's because it's such a conformist culture, they don't generally encourage crazy individuality. Mm. You know, so if you're a slick looking dude with a like a flat top or a punch mm. perm, you got the nice sunnies, a nice suit back in the day. If you're wearing a suit and you stretch your arm out to shake someone's hand and they see that that black scalloping mm. or the hint of a cherry blossom or a mm. dragon or something, that is enough intimidation to make your average person shit themselves. So it's almost like they didn't have they don't have much visual, they don't know neck No, they no don't need it. Because as well, that's gonna limit your business opportunities. Mm. You're putting a target on yourself. You're not going to be able to move seamlessly throughout society or in and out of businesses or local mm. areas because you're going to be like stand out way more than that heavily tattooed guy here. Yeah. So and and just that alone I think has a lot more impact and power. Like for me, I I don't have my hands or neck or anything done. Mm. Um probably because of being so interested and, and captivated with the Japanese culture. Um, you know, I've got guys that work with me that have it. Like we've got a rule in the shop and this goes back to my mentor, Trevor McStay, mm. who put so much work into me over the years. Like we don't do face tattoos. We mm. do everything else. And the reason I've got nothing against face tattoos, it's back to respect to Trevor because mm. he put so much effort into me to help get me to where I am today. But at the same time, I view it as it doesn't show tattooing in a, a positive light to the general public. Mm. So your hands, neck and face, they all age a lot better, a lot sorry, a lot worse than other parts of your body. So mm. you might have an amazing tattoo on your face, but five to ten years' time it's not going to look that good. Yeah. You know, so that's probably why I've run this profile and – you know, I can put a jumper on and move in and out of anything and you won't know I'm a tattoo artist at all, which I think has definitely worked in my favour over the years. Those guys, did you ever, like, when I just, I like touching on it because there's a fascinating, I'm fascinated oh, by Oh, everyone was. Movies like Showdown in Little Tokyo, you know, mm. Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee, like they're, they're having a fight in the spa scene. Like Japanese bodysuits are very different to, you know, Polynesian or Maori or whatever. It's it's 
probably the only style of tattooing that is definitely associated with gangsterism or mm. organised crime, mm. almost part of a uniform. So even as Japan's changing now and it's still opening up, it's now legal, it was always such a grey area. But younger people are going to get like old school tattoos or realism tattoos or small sort of cutesy things. Mm. It's going to take generations until it loses that stigma in Japan. Mm. Um, and even some of my good friends over there, one of my great mates, Megu, he's he's a cool dude. He's got a fashion label as well. He's like killing it, right? Mm. But he's got his, his knuckles tattooed and a small tattoo on his neck. When he took his child to go to school to do the interviews, has to go and get makeup put over him, purely because he doesn't want to limit or put his son in a position where he's going to be ridiculed or ostracised because oh, your dad's a bad guy. Mm. So it's still heavily associated with that sort of stuff in Japan. And he goes to me, I never thought in my life that I would have to cover these things up. But now that I'm a dad and I want my son to have the best life he can do, I have to do this stuff. How how did you find, were you with those guys when you sort of, because you party with them and that sort of thing, they get to know you first before they do anything. They really want to test your character, don't they? Yeah, I, I found I've always been viewed with intrigue mm. and because I'm not, I, I've learned over the years um, being in various situations like, I'll remove myself from it or I'm not going to start asking people questions, oh, what this guy do, what mm. that do. That's not me. Mm. So I think out of that I've got some sort of level of respect or mm. understanding it. And with the guys over there, what we were talking about before, humour, mm. right? So you do get primed up, you get told not to put your hand out to shake their head unless they want to shake your hand mm. first. Um, don't drink your drink before they drink their drink first. Little protocols that you go mm. through. But then as the sake starts flowing and the highballs, <laughs> you get more loose, everyone starts getting their gear off and showing tattoos and talking tattoos. Um, I'm pretty good at pidgin English or multiple versions of different languages mm. over the over, I've learned over the years. Body language, charades, you start doing stuff and mm. then the barriers drop and it just becomes fun. Give respect, get respect, huh? Yeah. That's yep. one of those things. Yep. and. Mate, who were some of the like, mate? You've tattooed a few famous, a few famous people. You, you've yeah. got, you know, one of the biggest names in tattooing in Australia. Who are some of the famous people you've tattooed? I've done a lot over the years, and some I just won't mention their name out of respect because mm. it's it's their private thing. Mm. But I've been, I've tattooed probably the biggest one everyone knows is probably Justin Bieber. I tattooed Ruby Rose extensively. I've tattooed Ed Sheeran. Tattooed Sam Smith, um, Matt Goss, one of the guys from Bross back in the UK, one of the chicks from the Sugar Babes, a bunch of footy players, mm -hmm. cricket players, um, loads of DJs over the years. Um, and I think it just sort of, you might tattoo one, someone might see it, you somehow end up in a little circle, your name gets thrown around, you are easy to work with, you're a good guy, and then it just sort of goes from there. Give us the Bieber, mate. Tell us what it was like tattooing him. Give us a story there. How did that all come about? The Bieber was a good one and, like, I I expected to get way more slaughtered from it by people in the industry than I did, which was surprising. So basically when I had my first studio in Bondi, his stylist was from the UK, 
a cool um, rock and roll stylist chick. She wanted to get tattooed in Australia. She called my mate Lau Hardy back in the UK, who's like my UK mentor. He said, go see Reese. She came, I tattooed her. She's gone back to the hotel. Another friend of mine, Ian, who looks after his security here, she's walking up the stairs and he sees the bandage on her arm and he's like, do you just get tattooed? And she goes, yeah, whereabouts, Bondi. And then Ian goes, I hope Reese did. And she went, yeah, how do you know Reese? And then it just sort of rolled from there. Six degrees of separation. Yeah, yeah Bieber sees the tattoo as well because she had full sleeves. I've done sleeves on Ian and a back piece. They all start talking. Then he wants to have a tattoo party. So it's like, all right, you get the call. It was a little bit hard to get it locked down. Like I got a phone call one night at 1.30 in the morning, you know, come and tattoo us now. I'm like, mate, I'm not ready. Um, just sort of rolled from there. We ended up getting it locked down, trying to organise a big tattoo party. There was me and three other tattooers came, went to his hotel room. I tattooed him, fuck, probably for about seven hours. I got there at 11 at night and left at nine in the morning. Um, but it was interesting to see that whole celebrity, high-level celebrity lifestyle, like security, had to like hand my phone in, put it in a room, sign a non-disclosure, uh, halfway through the tattoo, and I'll get slaughtered for this because I'm talking about it, but we've passed the statutory mm. time frame. Halfway through the tattoo, he sends a van to Star City to go and get a van load of chicks. All the chicks come back. I'm tattooing him in the middle of the room. The lights get dim. The music gets pumped up, turns his cap backwards, and off we go. All the girls come in. It's like I'm tattooing in the middle of a nightclub. Mm. But at the same time, I had some real good moments with him. He mm. was, like, very open to get the best tattoo that I thought out of the three designs I'd drawn for him. Asked me to fix up some older shitty tattoos. But at the same time... I got to see a side of life that if it wasn't for tattooing, I never would have been involved in. But you just see things where, you know, you almost feel a bit sorry because he's got a security team around him the whole time. If he wanted to go to Bondi Beach, probably going to get told maybe that's not a good idea. We've got to go somewhere else. Maybe we'll never have proper new friendships, maybe relationships with girls is going to be a hard one as well. And also I felt like there were just people around that were just yes people. Mm. And if he didn't get what he wanted, you know you're going to be gone and the next person's going to come in. And I guess that's just the result of that incredible crazy life. You wouldn't want it. Like I, I've, you know, I recently spent a bit of time with a pretty famous AFL player and just I felt for him, man. You actually feel sorry for him, don't you? Yeah, you can have all the money in the world, all the fame in the world, um, all the, you know, all the fans, all that stuff, but when are you going to be really you? Mm. You know, when are you going to be able to know that this person likes me just for me, not to try and use you as a stepping stone or or a bragging right or anything like, like that? Let's talk about the evolution of tattooing in Australia worldwide now. It's really brought artists into the game, hasn't it? 100%. Well, you know, you've been to the shop a, a lot recently yeah. and, and you know, you've seen we've got a very wide range of artists. Um, how many How many you got there? There's 21 or 22 of us at the moment and we get a lot of guest artists coming yeah. through. So yeah. we've got 
a bunch from Korea, other countries. We've got a guy up from Melbourne at the moment, which is a good exchange for everyone. It's almost like, you know, we're all learning and seeing and inspiring each other. But I like what you just said, you know, always learning. Yeah, yeah. Always learning to be better. I love that. I love that. Yeah. You're like you want it, you're known as one of the best tattooists in the world, but you're always learning. Well, me now, like I, it's it's really nice to hear these things from you and from other people. But for me, if if I look at my career, I never want to win the grand final. I want to be in the top four or the top six for my whole career. Mm-hmm. You know why is that? Because. Maybe insecurity, I'm not sure, maybe some self-doubt. But for me, because what I've seen is if you think you're the best or you're killing it too much, maybe the ego is going to take over and maybe you're going to start getting sloppy, you're going to start getting lazy, you're going to start, you know. You want to keep the hunger? Yeah, for sure. That's the hunger. Yeah, well, now where I'm at, like tattooing is similar to a professional sports person's career but you get an extra 10 or 15 years on it, right? So if you're at the top of your game at an elite sport, you're maybe going to get to 35, right? Then it's law of the jungle, the next crew is going to come in and take over. Tattooing is kind of similar. So the people I look up to, there's probably only a handful of guys in Australia in their their mid-50s, mid-60s that are still at a top level. The key to that is because they're still learning, they're still hungry, and I think they don't, take themselves too seriously or let the ego get away from you. And I'm at a point now where I reckon I've got 15 solid years left of being super productive. Then my eyes could go, my hands could go, my back could go. What's the common injuries for tattooists? Probably back, hands. Like even me, I use lighter machines now and and more of the modern stuff because – you know, I was doing 15, 20 tattoos a day, five, six days a week for years. It takes a toll on your body holding like a big heavy tattoo machine where now they're like a quarter of the weight. Hmm. So, um, yeah, just the hunger. And I look at where I am now and I look at the success of the shop and the position I'm in, I just want to like zone in and really push for this next period rather than get to that retirement age, which I probably won't have a choice in, it'll just, it'll be evident that it's mm. time to to hang it up um, and know that I gave it my best shot. Like I get a lot of, with art in general, it's pretty isolating and pretty lonely. Mm. Like it's not like we're all sitting around drawing every night after work and showing ideas to each other and collaborating. That does happen, but on a much smaller scale. So there's a lot of hours at home just drawing, refining, putting in the work, doing all of this stuff. So, But then there's also those little gems of self-discovery or, oh, man, that little turn on that wave, I got that. Hmm. No one else may get it. Maybe another like tattooist will get it. would songwriter, wouldn't it? be like being a songwriter. Yeah, you're trying to find something new. Like it's, yeah, if you look at it that way as well, it's it's like a, a visual version of lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The... Evolution is part of you bring in a lot of keep, people that come in from the Conservatory of Art or whatever it's mm. called <clears throat> into tattooing and I've seen a lot of it. Like you've got Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy, for instance, who works for you now. Like what's his background? So Jimmy is, mate, one of my favourites. He's like a true Renaissance man, right? He comes from an incredibly gifted background. He's, he's played in uh, ARIA award-winning bands. He's recorded in LA and toured 
with a lot of big, big, you know, bands as a support band. He studied fine arts. He's an amazing oil painter. He's an amazing, you know, anything to do with art, he's phenomenal at. He's been tattooing now for about 10 years. So this is where it's changed as well. Tattooing's no longer seen as somewhat of a shady industry where your parents don't want you to get involved in it because they think you're going to be come in contact with the dodgy side of life. Mm. So Jimmy's one of the rare people that's come in over all this artistic background put together and just risen to the top. Like in the realism world as well, his stuff's instantly recognisable, as is Pat that works in that room yeah. as well. So Pat, I got tattooed by Pat recently, yeah. Yeah, and you're going to get the other side by Jimmy. Yeah, like yeah. So, so these are two young guys, similar sort of um, era, age, Pat comes into tattooing through a graffiti background. So where Jimmy comes into it through a fine art background. Um, so you've now got all of these other people that have maybe. And, they, and I guess, yeah, they, because I've seen that they obviously talk and they share yeah. knowledge and that sort of stuff. And that. Well, for me, what's been really interesting with those two, they've done quite a lot of collaboration pieces. So they've both worked on a couple of guys' tattoos together, mm. like done back pieces together. Oh, excuse me done back pieces together and you get two different styles merged into one. They're both learning from it at the same time, inspiring each other, probably inspiring other artists that are seeing it on Instagram. Um, They're pushing the boundaries. Mm. You know, it's more a a collaborative piece. One of the guys is getting pretty much a bodysuit of all collaborations from Pat is the main guy, then you've got Jimmy, another guy, Feezy, a few other people are all coming in. So this guy's going to have a very unique bodysuit. And and that's where tattooing now is evolving as well. Like large-scale work is becoming incredibly accepted yeah. and also something. You're seeing cops with neck tattoos. You're seeing. Yeah. You're yep. seeing like, in, like half the, in the day, you know, you don't, the tattoos that some of the prison guards have got yep. these days, only bikies would have. Or, you know, or the significance. Let's talk. I just want to talk about a few things like in the day, you know, you, you get someone get spider webs on their elbows. Yep. What, what was that representation of? Mate, you can look at it. Some people will say it's it's could signify being caught in the web of life, whether that be drug addiction or crime or who knows whatever. Like yeah. I've got a red spider web on my elbow yeah. just because it looks cool. Yeah. Because the guy Charlie that taught me had two spider webs on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. He was an old Sharpie, so they had, and on my wrists I've got like the Sharpie stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because to me that was the epitome of cool back in the day. In the day, and it was tough. Now there's a big resurgence in seventies and eighties tattooing. So you've got your young, you know, the hipsters have died off a bit, but you've got a new generation yeah, coming through of young kids getting bodysuits of just all sticker stamp-style tattoos over them. I remember Bluebirds on the Hands was significant yep. of a fighter. Yep, fast hands. Yep. Yeah, a guy that wanted to fight. And um, <clears throat> Teardrops obviously was, a you know, yep. for the killers. Yep. I used to see blokes in there in jail that had teardrops all over that were pinched on shoplifting. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, a book came out, Russian Prison Tattoos, and wow. that started up, mate, a lot of people with this stuff on them wouldn't want to go to Russia because these people are awarding themselves all of these tattoos on their body to look like some hard school, hard old school Russian prisoner just because it looks cool, just because it's in a book. The the Russian ones, like, they signify their tattoos by how many years they've done. Yeah. Pretty hardcore. I've seen... I've seen ja- uh, tattooing from a jail perspective yep. and they, you know, they, they get, you know, they make some soot 
and yep. mix it with baby oil and yep. there's your ink. Yeah. And yep. Tattoo and make a gun out of a, a CD motor and, man, yep. I've seen some very talented tattooists in there. For sure. But they'd struggle out here with the proper a proper yep. gun. And I remember my best mate was a bloke called Chris Miller and he had he done an apprenticeship to Graham Isles. Yep. And he turned up to Graham with a photo album of jail tattoos and Graham just said, put that down, I'll teach you how to tattoo now. <laughs> but look, at look, tattooing, and he went on to have a great career. Yeah. Like tattooing under that extreme environment, you know, to come in under somebody like Graham, Graham obviously saw something and he's going to flourish, mm. you know. Um, like I've tattooed all walks of life over the years, like tattooing, there's always been a saying where it's like where the elite and the underworld meet. Yeah. So, you know, I I've, I've had some clients that have, have gone away on holiday and then I've had phone calls from prison, people wanting to book in, hey, I'm going to be out in six months. Can I get on your waiting list? So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have a recognisable style um, that people, even customers will be going, hey, I was at the gym or I was walking down the street and someone came up and said, oh, is that, did Reese do that? Yeah. So it, it's a nice feeling and that's back can to. Can you see that? But can you see that in other styles and know, if you can look at someone's tattoo and know who they've done it? Yeah. If you're, if you're into like, I can choose, I can not choose, I can tell who's done good work in Sydney, you know, to an extent Melbourne still and Queensland because it does sort of have its own sort of signature. Mm. It could be line weight. It could be density of colours or black and grey or softer, more pastel mm. colours. Some could be more solid and, and simpler. Others can be more um, exotic or feminine or detailed. So you get to see and, you know, you obviously know who's who in the area and you see stuff and you look around and you keep an eye on it, um, which is used as inspiration as well. Let's talk about little Tokyo. Like, man, that's an experience. I was... I was blown away when I went in there. Like I walked into this fully bombed out graffiti laneway and it looked dodgy and I'm going, oh, what the fuck, you know, and I and I, I was on my phone to run issue what I was saying, mate, am I in the right place? He goes, yeah, just keep going. <laughs> and I went to look for the lift button and it's that hardly graffiti. You can't even see it. Yeah. Then I go up the lift, five levels up the lift and I get out and there's this Tokyo shock boy. Yeah. Barbershop. <laughs> yeah. I'm going, what the fuck? But, but it was just... An explosion for the senses. Yeah, what you've created yep. there, like yep. you know, and you and you walk in, and it is like Tokyo. It's another word. I encourage so yep. many people. Anyone listening to this podcast, just go there for the experience. Have a look. Please what, do. What, doors, doors what are re- open. Yeah, what Reese has created there, and the graph graffiti. Like you mean, it doesn't. You don't have to be in a graffiti, mm. but you can appreciate the art yep. that is on the walls there. Yep. You know, and tell tell us about the journey about kicking off. Little Tokyo. Little Tokyo is, I've probably been working on my own now for maybe 11, 12, probably 13 years. And and this is sort of like the evolution of tattooing in Sydney. Like Mm. I'm a Melbourne boy. I travelled the world. I worked on the Gold Coast. I came to Sydney. Sydney was semi-controlled by clubs mm. of shops, all this sort of yeah. stuff. Like, We're talking RMC bikey clubs. Yeah, yeah. very well documented. Like yeah. I'm sure there's should be an underbelly series on it at mm. some point. Like prior to to the government bringing in a tattoo licensing law, which is similar to like tow truck licenses mm. or security licenses, it was still pretty wild west, right? So I'd... And it'd be fair to say the bikies have been we- weeded out. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's so hard for them to be... Oh, it's, for sure. 
Because they sure. really do some invest. They they yep. investigate pretty hard, don't they? Yeah. Well, for me to get an operator or any shop owner to get an operator's license, you've got to have no affiliations, no convictions. Uh, you've got to have CCTV set up. There's all these strict requirements if you've got to do for your shop. Like, you know, if if Eve, I remember working in shops and like some dude would just pull up out the back and park his Harley and come in. The next day you've got Raptor at the shop going, who's this dude? Mm. So they really clamped down on it, which allowed tattooing to maybe flourish yeah. a little bit more. So well, that's when it, that's when the evolution sort of kicked off. Yeah. That's when it brought the, that encouraged artists yes. sort of like your jimmies. And they felt safe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To sort of come in. And let's get back to, so let's talk about Little Tokyo. How Little Tokyo, short story, I was working at a great shop called Tattoo Dharma that ended up getting firebombed mm. because someone wanted money, mm. no one was going to get any money, all the politics. So I then just started working out of a small studio in, in Bondi and I had, I didn't think I could ever have a proper shop because it was still, let's say, too risky. So a couple of years later, the government brought in the licensing situation. I knew I was too well known to continue working underground. So I had a small shop in Bondi Junction that grew from me up to five people. Mm. And then I got booted out of that shop due to insurance. Um, then the third incarnation is now Little Tokyo in Surrey Hills. So I struggled to find a studio in Bondi, in Bondi Junction, and then I had to look at the city. And I was fortunate enough to find this space I'm at now. Same thing. I come into the building and I'm like, man, this is a crack den. What's going on here? But the rent's relatively cheap. Come in the elevator. I'm coming up. Same thing. I walked out and it, it was very grimy, not as nice as it is now. I walked around the corner and I saw these two double doors and I thought, man, this is the spot. This is going to be something. And I sort of switched my mindset when I opened those doors to, I'm going to take this to the next level rather than just try and recreate what I'd had. Mm. So through opportunity, being in the city, being in that crazy, artistic, graphed out, cracked out of a building um, allowed me to bring more artists, mm. more customers came, and it just kept growing. So as I've made more money in that business, I've just reinvested it into it over and over and over again. So an opportunity came up to take a space next door, I took that, renovated it, more artists, off we go. So fast forward all of that stuff to now, it's got a life of its own and I'm just trying to guide it a little bit, keep it on the on the, the right track. Uh, but it's now somewhat of a thing where it's sort of got some sort of force that brings right people to it at the right time where Joji the barbershop is a prime example. So now you come out of that elevator and you see this crazy barbershop from Tokyo there. Mm. He's third-generation Japanese barber, him and his brother. Mum and dad are mad rockabillies back in Japan. Mum rides a Harley and dad drives a lowrider. So it's it's authentic. Mm. You, can't, you can't create that building and I've not tried to create little Tokyo. I love it's that just fluoro. Happened. They've got this fluoro glow. You come, it's like the fluoro of a nightclub. Yeah, the rave cave. Yeah, and it's like the two Tokyo shock boys, as I sort of call them, cutting hair on it and the music and you've created a real good atmosphere in there and I think the atmosphere, you pick it up and I think the atmosphere 
He's really reflective of you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Like it's yeah. it's cool, it's chic, it's not yeah. intimidating, it's like yeah. it's a cool, it feels like a safe place yeah. to be street hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we get the lot, like we get, we still get a wide variety, but it's mainly mainstream now. Like mm. we get, you know, we still get celebrities, YouTubers, Instagrammers, um, Western Sydney rappers, we get the lot coming through and it's such cool to see such a mix of different people all walking through there together and, and for me it's it's a blessing. It's more than my craziest dream that could have ever come true. So I walk in there, I walk around there some nights on my own when I'm locking up or whatever and that's when it'll kick in and go, Holy fuck! How did this happen? Yeah, um, and it's it's really nice and special. But it's also allowed a lot of artists to prosper and to grow and build their careers and be inspired by not only myself but other artists, but also clients as well. Because without clients, we'd be no one. Like that guy that's open to getting the collaborative bodysuit from Pat and Jimmy and Feezy. So it's sort of. Three- like that in itself is amazing because that's three journeys. Yeah, that person yep. is on, and they're all not bringing their A game; they're bringing their A plus 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 game yeah. on that day because it's you get that special chemistry that's there, and you just want to push. And that's like I'm he, sort of getting the same. I'm getting you. I'm so, I'm getting Pat, and I'm yep. gonna you know I, I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get and I'm gonna get that gun on my yep. You know, I just was, I'm blown away by the art on the wall there. And, and a lot of that stuff is stuff I've collected from all around my travels all over the years. Like, mm. you know, I've been. The toilet. Yeah, well, the toilet was a lockdown project for me. Like, yeah. I was like, okay, so next time you're in there, you look at the mirror, the big gold mirror, it's got the peacock moment up there, yeah. right? That comes from Paul, yeah. right? So when I finished Paul's bodysuit, he was like, he was on his his mission to get it done for, for 50, right? And he was like, oh, this is the peacock moment. And that, that's the same thing for everyone. When they look in that mirror, they got their feathers out, they're like chest puffed out or their ass puffed out mm-hmm. and their leg up or whatever. And it's whether it's a small tattoo or a bodysuit, mm-hmm. everyone gets that same feeling of, oh, I look hot or tough or cool or whatever. Um, so I think that talking, mirror just, maybe started it off. We're talking about Paul. Paul Douglas was a, a guy that I grew up, Paul Douglas, Paul Roberts was yep. a guy I grew up with in Mount Druitt, you know. Um, we'd done a bit of jail, you know, boys' homes and jails together and, you know, and jail, like that. He was, I remember listening to Rose Tattoo with him. Yep. They were our early influences of yeah. tattooing and that's when we wanted to be, you know, have sleeves and everything yep. like that, you know. Unfortunately, we lost Paul recently yep. and it, Paul, um, we lost Paul recently, rest in peace, Paul, yep. and... Um, and that was another connection we have, you know yes. what I mean? Because I remember yep. seeing him and, I like, I've got a photo of his, you know, his display and, you know, that's another connection we have. And yep. But it's it's funny how tattooing connects people too. For sure. And, and also the transformative power it can have, not on everyone but on some people, is huge and it can't be underestimated. Like I finished off the second part of Paul's bodysuit um, and, and Josh, a guy that I worked for, did the first part of it. And a lot of the stuff Josh did on Paul was cover-ups, a lot of jail tattoos, yeah. a lot of this stuff. So Paul went from 
being looked at like a menacing thug to having cool tattoos on him that allowed him to be proud of himself again and not, you know, I don't know, not feel like a criminal criminal or ashamed Mm. of these shitty tattoos on him. So, you know, Tall taught me a lot, taught me a lot over the years. You know, you spend a lot of hours with people, all the layers of the onion get peeled back and you find out who's who. He knows as much about me as I know about him and it's like a great experience. They went to Tokyo on that together? Yeah, he come to Japan with us um, and, like, we he he wanted to score some weed, right? So Mm. I'm like, all right, I'll try and get some. So I spoke to my mate and we got to meet this guy on on a street corner and all of a sudden this black limousine pulls up with the black windows and everything and my mate goes, oh, this is either a politician's car or Yucca's a car. So we jump in the back and the guy's like, oh, yeah, sorted us out some weed and and then um, started seeing the tattoos, started talking the tattoos and then he's like peeled back his shirt and you see his big chest plate and he's pulling up his sleeves of his arm and we jump out of it and Paul goes, man, that was so cool, dude. Mm. Like how good was that? Yeah. You know? And that would be – that's because the respect that you have with those guys yeah. too, Rich. You just – not anyone could go and do that. Yeah. Yeah. That must feel pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing. Like for me, Japan makes me – want to be a better person every yeah. time I go there. Mm. Like can, compared to Western society, um, we're, we're a little bit too far gone and maybe Japan's still a little bit too traditional, but you, you can take a lot out of it. It's so clean, people are so polite, so neat, so orderly, um, and then you come back here and, you know, a bus will drive past and it's smeared in diesel fumes and shit all over it and you sit on the bus seat and it's not been cleaned for weeks. Mm. So in Japan, their buses are perfect. Mm. Everything is clean and orderly. So you always come back or I always come back going, you know, I want to be better. I want to, you know, be a better person. So it's got an impact on me, not just on the tattoo level, but a level, like a society level as well. Yeah. Amazing. Mate, anything else you want to knock out? Um, Not at all, but just thanks for this opportunity. Um, Thanks for everyone that has worked with me and is working with me and will work for me. Thanks to the clients. Um, you know, we, without the clients, we'd be no one. Um, they they give us an opportunity to to live a crazy life that none none of us tattoo artists probably ever dreamed we could. Yeah. So just grateful and, and thankful and, yeah, all the rest of it. You got a show coming up, tattoo show coming up? Yeah, so yes, I'm partnering with the Sydney Tattoo Convention at Sydney Town Hall, 11, 12th and 13th of August. Yeah. Um, so if you want to see high-level tattooing, see seminars, see great tattoo shows, there's educational components, uh, please come along. Smack bang in the centre of Sydney Town Hall, which is rare in itself to be able to... It's come a long way. It wouldn't have ex- happened. Uh, no way. It was always like out at some bike club somewhere yeah, or, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, tattooing, we're going to do our best to promote what we believe is quality tattooing. So, yeah, come check that out and roll from there. Reese Gordon, thanks for coming here, Jamie. I really appreciate having you, man. You just want to – I was saying after I got tattooed off you the other night, I went and thanked Ron Isherwood and I said, mate, thank you for introducing me to Reese because he's one of the best blokes I've ever met. But thank you for being here. Yeah, No, I appreciate it, mate. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you.